0: Good morning, church family. It's great to see all of your faces. If you uh, happen to be new here, welcome, first off. Uh, My name is Dave Lundberg. Uh, I'm a home group leader and a deacon here at GCF, and it is uh, truly an honor to be able to preach God's word to you all this morning. Uh, I'm, I'm very thankful as well that I did not include, with it being March, First Sunday of March, uh, sun in, in my intro, because we don't have any sun today. So God is sovereign over all things, and I'm confident that he has helped me to plan this uh, wisely. Uh, we're going to be in Mark, if you guys want to turn your word, uh, your Bibles, to Mark chapter 10. If you are willing and able, please stand with me as we read the word. Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 31. Mark chapter 10. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. And Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. Will you all pray with me one, one last time here? Uh, Father God, I just uh, acknowledge my uh, need in front of your people here and my um, inability to, to do anything to their hearts by standing up here. God, the work is yours. give it to you, and I just pray that you would um, just help me to speak clearly this morning you would calm my nerves and I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room this morning that you would open their ears to receive your word. God, humble us this morning before your word. Help us to acknowledge your word as supernatural, as living and breathing and sharper than a double-edged sword that is able to pierce through the hardest of hearts. Father, will you do that this morning? Thank you for your son, Jesus our great high priest, our great mediator. It's in his name we pray, amen. Well, Where the Red Fern Grows was a 1961 children's novel written by Wilson Rawls. It's a story about a boy named Billy and his uh, two coonhound pups, old Dan and little Ann. And it teaches hard-hitting lessons about determination, love, sacrifice, But hidden within one of its chapters, we learn a strategy for trapping raccoons that actually (laughs) has great theological implications uh, related to our text this morning. So in it, Billy needs a raccoon hide as he's going to start training these pups of his. So his grandpa instructs him on how to make the best raccoon trap. He tells him to get a log, drill a hole down into the log, and put something shiny. Put some kind of shiny object at the bottom of the hole. And as a raccoon passes by... He'll kind of notice the shiny object. And he'll reach his little paw in there to grab it. And once he does, he's stuck for good. Well, being the clever young boy that he is, Billy thinks his grandfather's playing a trick on him. Because Billy's the one, you see, who has to go capture the raccoon once they're stuck with a club. And I don't know if you have ever been close to a raccoon before, but if all a raccoon has to do is let go, (laughs) I wouldn't want to be anywhere near that. So Billy thinking his grandfather's playing a trick on him, is is curious because he's like, well, clearly all the raccoon has to do is let go, and he'll be released from the trap, right? Because the reason the raccoon's stuck is his little paw becomes a fist when he's holding on to this object, and he can't get his hand back out of the hole. But if he were to let it go, he could slip right out. Well, his grandfather laughs at Billy, and then he explains to him, as silly as it may seem, a raccoon's obsession with shiny objects hijacks their ability to let it go once they reach in and get a hold of it they are caught for good they will never open their paw to give it up isn't that interesting it's a raccoon's nature to be so obsessed with shiny objects so much that they become too stubborn to let them go even as the hunter approaches them they won't let it go So the raccoon is literally its own barrier of saving himself from himself. And the lesson here, church, is that we're really no different, are we? John Calvin has famously quoted that the the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. And he's right. We love shiny, worldly things that profit us. And once we get a hold of them, oh boy, do we refuse to let them go. Because deep down, it's in our nature to idolize and to worship them. Of course, the most common idols that we fall victim to are ourselves. Our longings for self-satisfaction, self-comfort, self-gratification. And by doing so, we make ourselves God and we push out the living God. And this creates a massive problem for us because the Lord tells us that we can't worship multiple gods. So the last few weeks, this lesson has been on repeat as we've um, had teachings on divorce, childlike faith, and these reveal that the kingdom is for those who are completely dependent on God, not themselves. So one may think, okay, so the solution is simple. Just let go of your idols and follow Jesus. Just be more dependent on God. Well, as obvious and simple as that may seem, letting go of the things that keep us from Jesus end up proving to be much more difficult than we may think. And this is because the largest barrier that gets in the way of us letting things go is ourselves. Like the raccoon, we are the barrier to saving ourselves from ourselves. So the theme of the sermon this morning is getting into heaven is more difficult than you may think. Getting into heaven is more difficult than you may think. But Dave, you mean just for the rich, right? Because isn't this a story about riches? Well, as a quick spoiler alert, we're going to go much deeper than that this morning. While we know that scripture provides several warnings on the love of money, uh, laying up treasures on earth, I believe our text this morning is much more than that. At its core, it's really about salvation, inheriting salvation, Often misunderstood to be a parable, this story of the rich young ruler is a real encounter between Jesus and this man. This actually happened. And in it, we we see a a zealous, well-intentioned seeker approach Jesus with a question that most everybody in this room has asked. What must I do to be saved? The most important question that one can ask. Well, think about how you would respond if someone approached you after church. Or think about the many ways we've heard this question answered. You may have a close friend who told you that you need to work really hard to obey laws and to follow tradition to earn your salvation. Maybe you know someone who puts an emphasis on moral excellence, good behavior. Right? You need to strive to be a good person so that you can qualify for heaven because that's where good people go. Bad people go to hell, good people go to heaven. Or maybe you grew up in a church that provided the simplest approach possible through easy believism, quick profession of faith through a simple prayer, maybe a raise of a hand or a walk down an aisle, and all you have to do is believe in Jesus' response with no strings attached, no cost whatsoever to the seeker. Merited salvation, moral excellence, easy believism, though there are many other wrong answers like these out there, they all stem from a common barrier that we all share it's all about me it's all about me we love ourselves so much and we trust in ourselves so much that we cannot let go in order to trust or follow anyone else so getting into heaven is more difficult than you may think and this morning I'm gonna explain this by way of three points first it's difficult to qualify for heaven it's difficult to follow Jesus and it's difficult to beat the odds. It's difficult to qualify for heaven. It's difficult to follow Jesus. And it's difficult to beat the odds. So let's dive into our first point. It's difficult to qualify for heaven. Well, the first qualifier we see here is that heaven is for good people, and we aren't good. Look with me at verses 17 through 18. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Well, here we're introduced to this rich, young ruler. We know that he's rich, as verse 22 indicates, and we know that he is a young ruler, as the parallel accounts in Luke 18 and Matthew 19 tell us. You put all three of those together, that builds up our rich, young ruler. But these adjectives are helpful for us to understand the setting because here is a man who essentially has it all. He's got the platinum card. He always gets the best seats. He's pious. He's esteemed throughout his community. He is the quintessential big deal that we all wish we could be. And to make him even more annoying and admirable, he's a nice guy. Don't we love to see like annoying rich people because then we're like, well, at least I'm not like that. He's a nice guy. He's a guy we would want to hang out with. The fact that this prestigious man kneels down before Jesus was a tremendous sign of respect. And this is a huge contrast compared to what we've been seeing the last few chapters as Jesus encounters the Pharisees. There's no respect there. Where these Pharisees approach him with agendas to try to trap and accuse Jesus, here the rich young man kneels before him in humility. With great respect, to ask a genuine question What good thing must I do to be saved? Well, Jesus responds to his question oddly by immediately correcting him with a hard truth. A hard truth, yet one of the most basic fundamentals of the gospel message that man is not good. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Well, some scholars go off into the ditch here by teaching that Jesus is actually denying his own deity. But that's not the point being made. See, this young man has no clue that Jesus is even God. He only sees him as a mere human who's a wise and popular teacher. So Jesus is not making a point that he himself is not God or good. Rather, he's correcting this man's theology. He's calling another human good. But God alone is good. Not man. Likewise, it's Imperative that we don't nuance this today as scripture is clear that the word good is to be used as an absolute. I know it's, we're used to saying, oh, he's a good boy, she's a good person, but we can certainly have varying degrees of badness out there, therefore making the word badness relative. But the word good is an absolute and only can belong to God. Scripture supports this in Romans 3.12. All have turned aside... Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, Surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Psalm 53.2. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. So are you a good person? No. Sorry. You're not a good person. Is being good a requirement to get into heaven? Yes. I remember R.C. Sproul would talk about this, how if you were to ask multiple people off the street if they were perfect, at least 90% would scoff and say, of course not. Nobody's perfect. Yet they would have no problem with that. And then they would go on to argue how they're still a good person. And one important thing to clarify on what this doesn't mean. This is very important. Our inability to do good is not so much about our doing. Rather, it's about our being. Meaning, we're not just all out there doing evil all the time. The worst evil that we could be doing. Or that we're even incapable of being friendly. Or nice. Or good citizens. Rather, it speaks to us not being inherently good from within the heart. See, it's about our nature as human beings that our nature is inherently bad from birth because we are all born sinners. There's not one human on this earth who is not a sinner. Thank you, Adam and Eve. And since the standard of good is God himself, he sets the standard, then no human can ever measure up to that. So the wealthy CEO can be a nice guy who does great things and donates millions of his hard-earned cash to fight poverty, and that should be applauded. But the wealthy CEO also sins against the holy God every single day and therefore cannot qualify for good. No one is good except God alone. So if you're here and you're relying on being good or just hoping that being good is enough to get you into heaven, then I hate to break the bad news to you. You will never qualify. See, getting into heaven is more difficult than you may think because it is for good people and we aren't good. Next, we see that it's difficult to qualify for heaven because it requires perfect obedience to God's law. It requires perfect obedience to God's law. Let's continue our story here in verses 19 through 20. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. So this rich young man wants to know, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And after Jesus corrects his first misconception about what good is, he then brings out the law to further expose his misconception that he can work his way into heaven. Now, it's worth noticing these specific laws that Jesus brings up here. All of them are from the back half of the Ten Commandments. Hmm. I mean, let's say you just take these at face value, and you just so happen to miss Jesus' Sermon on the Mount where he provides the additional context that we know of today. Do not murder. I've never murdered anyone. Check. Do not commit adultery. I've been a faithful husband. Check. Do not steal. Only thing I stole was my wife's heart. Oh, check. (laughs) Which is not a sin, by the way. Honor your father and mother. I mean... I was a pretty good kid. There's worse kids out there. Check. See, these commandments were seen as softballs to them. Any well-raised, educated Jewish person probably considered themselves to have mastered these, even at a young age. It was piety 101, basic requirements for them. And even within our culture today, don't we hear others rate themselves based on how they interact with others within society? We hear things like, I've never murdered anyone. I make an honest living. I'm not a crook. Well, in fairness, while there's room for speculation on why Jesus uses these specific commandments, I think there's an important lesson here. See, we know that the first four commandments concern our love for God, right? What our relationship with God is to look like. These are also known as vertical commandments. The last six commandments concern our love for our neighbors. How we are to live with each other in society. These are known as horizontal commandments. So here's where I think Jesus is going with this. Mr. uh, Mr. Rich Young Ruler, yes, you do all these things. And it sounds like you're a pretty stand-up model citizen. Good job. But let me ask you this. Do you love God? What's your relationship with God look like? So I think Jesus specifically uses these horizontal commandments, knowing that this young man would boast about keeping them. All this to expose the great confidence that he has placed in himself. That he's checked all the boxes. He's earned respect in society. He's done great things for his community. He's raised a wonderful family. He has done. He has done. He has done. He's filthy rich in great works, yet his relationship with God is completely bankrupt. He has a major deficit in the one thing that matters the most. And this is a huge problem because since he trusts in himself so much, well, now he's in direct competition with God over who gets to sit on the throne. He's going toe to toe with God. One of my favorite childhood memories growing up uh, was literally swimming every day of the summer. I was in Southern California, it was hot. Every day we were at the pool. And I remember the, it was a public pool, it was huge, and it had the center divider thing going up the middle. And one half of it was about five feet deep. That was considered the shallow end. The other half was about 18 feet deep because it had all the diving boards. And It had this huge high dive. Well, of course, every kid wanted to go to the high dive section. But they couldn't just go run over there. They had to go see the lifeguard first. Because, of course, all the kids were very overconfident in their ability to swim. And uh, so the lifeguard would give them a quick little test. He would say, well, if you... Want to get into the deep end, you just got to pass this little test. Swim from one side to the pool without stopping or drowning, and then you could enter. Well, likewise, Jesus throws out a quick test to the self-confident man. Okay, so you're keeping the law, and, and by doing so, you're ready to inherit the kingdom. Great. Just do one quick thing to prove it. Let's look at verses 20 and 22. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth... And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. This confident young man was put to the test, and he didn't pass. Jesus exposes that why he thinks he's being a model citizen, worthy of the kingdom, because he's obeying the law. He's not even obeying the first Commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Brothers and sisters, if you are living in such a way that you think your status here on earth is earning you a spot in heaven, or that you are even capable of obeying God's commandments, then you are greatly mistaken. And you're competing with Christ. In his commentary regarding this rich young ruler, Calvin said, A blind confidence in this man's works hindered him from profiting under Christ. A blind confidence in this man's works hindered him from profiting under Christ. Meaning the more confidence we take in our own works, the better we think about ourselves and our abilities, the less we can actually value Christ and gain from what he offers us through his work on the cross. So if you're living with a pull myself up by my own bootstraps type of mentality, your work is in vain. If the hope of your eternal fate is literally resting on how much of the Bible you read, how good of a parent you are, or how much you give for God, then you are trying to outwork what Christ has already accomplished on your behalf. And is trying to give you today. The more hope you place in your ability, the further away you distance yourself from the perfect works of Jesus. It's almost like saying, no thank you Jesus, I got this. I really appreciate what you did there. It was a good thing, but I think I'm good. So getting into heaven is more difficult than you may think. It's difficult to qualify for heaven because you aren't good and you can't obey the law. Let's look at our second point this morning, that getting into heaven is more difficult than you may think because it's difficult to follow Jesus. It's difficult to follow Jesus. Hmm. The second point may sound a bit strange because Often we hear that following Jesus leads to an easier life. In fact, that's why you would want to follow him in the first place, right? Are you sick of having a hard life? Jesus can help. Are you sick of struggling financially? Jesus can help. Does life just feel weighty and hard? Well, Jesus is in your corner and he can make your life easier. It has unfortunately become American to associate words like blessing and happiness with the word ease. That if... We are truly blessed by God. Life will be easy, and things will just go our way. Well, this is, of course, contrary to what the Bible teaches, as we learn that following Jesus is actually difficult because following Jesus is costly. Following Jesus is difficult because following Jesus is costly. Look with me in verses 21 through 23. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. So this rich young ruler approaches Jesus to learn what he can do to inherit eternal life. Then Jesus commands him, Well, come follow me. But this command comes at a great Cost, we cannot miss this, brothers and sisters. Okay, all you have to do is sell all of your assets. Every single one of them. And then when you have all that money from selling your assets, I just want you to give it away. And then you can come follow me. Like a raccoon ensnared in a trap, unwilling to let go of his shiny little treasure, this rich young man cannot release the grip that he has on his riches. He wants the security of heaven but not at the cost of losing the things that bring him security here on earth. Can you relate to that? This man reveals a real life struggle and a difficult truth that we, we must be confronted with today. We have to wrestle with this if we are to follow Jesus. Well, Dave, great news. I'm not rich. So if Jesus asked me to give up my beater of a car, my minimum wage job, and my teeny little house... I'll just give it all away and I can enter heaven. Good to go. Well, while this passage has been wrongly used to exhort every single Christian to live in poverty and to give up all their wealth as the only means to follow Christ, they're missing the point that Jesus is making here. See, so this point isn't centered around a universal command to poverty. Rather, it's centered around a universal command to repentance. You want to follow Jesus? Then, yes, you need to hand him a blank check and allow him to write whatever he wants on it. But be aware, what he writes down won't always be monetary. You see, what Jesus may ask you to give up in order to follow him may be vastly different than what he asked of me. And this isn't a what would you do for a Klondike bar type of test or some divine power trip just to see what we're all willing to give up for him. No, he's after something very specific. He knows the depths of our hearts, and he knows what we're hiding. He knows what we're truly worshiping. Matthew 6.21 says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Every single one of you know what you're trying to hide from God, and you cannot hide it from God. He sees it clearly. One theologian says he, Jesus, does not need to preach to this rich young ruler about fornication and murder But to point out his particular disease, as if he were laying his finger directly on the sore, the command which Christ gave to sell all that he had was not an addition to the law, but the scrutiny of a concealed vice. The scrutiny of a concealed vice. So what is Jesus after? He's after our hearts. See, he wants to expose what we truly worship. And yes, it could be riches. And no doubt, that is a very, very common idol for many. But it could be so many more. Kids. Careers. Body image. Spouses. Alcohol. Food. So, so, so many more. So if you were to follow Christ then that requires full allegiance to him, which means the idols you worship and seek pleasure in have got to go. We must repent of our idolatry and redirect our worship to the true king, to Christ and Christ alone. Following Christ is difficult because this will cost you everything. It will cost you everything. I'm sure many of you in this room have amazing stories of what it cost you in order to follow Jesus. Jesus. I wish we could just for hours stay here today and just hear these stories. But consider those who live in the Middle East that know that making a decision to follow Christ could cost them their job, their home, their family, even their life. See, these are real circumstances that people have to wrestle with and think long and hard about when Jesus calls them to follow them. Perhaps you've given up valued assets. Valued relationships. I know I had to do that one. Reputation. Maybe some amazing career opportunities that were going to just make you filthy rich. I was reading an article where one person asked a great question. (laughs) I think this is funny because this is how my mind works. (laughs) They asked a great question pertaining to what it was going to cost them to follow Christ. They said, well, how do you count the cost when you don't know what's coming down the road of life? Meaning, how do I know specifically what Jesus is going to ask of me later if I commit my life to him now? It's a good question. The answer given was Jesus requires commitment to the highest possible cost. And as a result, nothing later is ever going to surprise you because you've already sold to the highest, most excessive cost. In other words, you don't need to know the specifics of each and every cost if the original agreement you signed is, I'm yours at any cost. I'm yours at any cost. Brothers and sisters, this is the commitment you signed on to when you decided to follow Jesus. I know for me, this was a much-needed reminder, as I had to recalibrate my heart, my mind, my expectations that being a Christian is not about Dave and Dave's kingdom. A much needed reminder that I gave up my old life when I followed Christ. The old Dave is dead. For the teenagers in this room, if you haven't already, you are so close to experiencing what the real world is like. And more independence is gonna provide you More opportunity to mingle with the shiny treasures and pleasures of this world and make no mistake about it. They are after your heart. And they will stop at nothing to get it. Are you ready for this? Is your allegiance to Jesus no matter what it's going to cost you? So getting into heaven is more difficult than you may think. It's difficult to qualify for heaven because you aren't good and you can't obey the law. It's difficult to follow Jesus because doing so is costly. And for our last point, getting into heaven is more difficult than you may think because it's difficult to beat the odds. It's difficult to beat the odds. So we've witnessed this rich young man walk away disheartened in mourning because he loves his wealth so much that he can't give it up to follow Christ. Perhaps you've been there, right? Perhaps you know what this feels like. Or maybe you're struggling with this very thing right now. You want to follow Christ. You want to go to heaven, but you're unwilling to surrender all. Or maybe you think you don't need to give up every single thing that Jesus is asking. So you figure you'll roll the dice, believe in Jesus, yet continue to live life the way you want and just hope that God's going to let you in in the end. This is a very bad strategy. In this last point, we learn that another hard-hitting truth is that you You must heed this if this is how you think, that following Jesus is the only way. If you walk away from Jesus and are left to your own ability, the odds of being saved are not great. In fact, Jesus tells us it is impossible. It is impossible. He provides us the best illustration to help us understand this hard truth. Let's read verses 24 and 25. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. You see, this truth is so disruptive to our human self-centeredness that we often can't take it at face value. How do I know that? Well, there have been several attempts to manipulate or soften this verse into saying something it doesn't. (laughs) It's typically what happens, right? Because if we take this illustration literally, it has significant implications. The most common attempt at softening it is directed at the eye of the needle phrase, where some here have suggested that this was a tiny gate, a tiny opening within a Jerusalem city wall, where camels could, you know, they could pass through, but on their knees. And that's the way rich people have to enter heaven. That sounds awesome. But there's no historical evidence of of, of any such thing. And why not just choose the, the wide gate and not go through the hassle? Another suggestion is that the word for camel, oops, was translated incorrectly. I hate when that happens. (laughs) It actually means a large rope or cable. Well, regardless, you're not going to fit a large rope or a cable through the eye of a sewing needle. Many other theories out there. Some so absurd as suggesting that one can liquefy a camel. Okay, stay with me here. (laughs) I was going to YouTube this, but I was on my work computer and I was like, you know, this probably isn't going to be good. But yeah, some, some have said you can, but you can liquefy a camel and then use a dropper or a syringe and beep, drop it through the eye of a needle. Done. <laughs> Folks, Jesus means what he says here. That salvation by human, human effort is impossible. Salvation by human effort is impossible. If you don't follow Jesus then the odds of making it into heaven are just as good as squeezing a real-life camel through the eye of a real-life sewing needle, literally. Contextually, this is very significant as the disciples witness what's going on. They're witnessing this conversation between Jesus and this rich young ruler. Consider the differences between the two. Culturally, the Jews believed that wealth was a sign of great blessing from God. If you are wealthy, then God is pouring down his blessing on you. It's even recorded in the Talmud that the more wealth one had, the more alms he could give, which means the more sacrifices and offerings he could offer, resulting in being able to purchase his redemption. So this rich young man was the ultimate candidate to ever be able to receive heaven's blessings due to his great wealth, his social status, his piety. He was the poster child. Yet here are the disciples. Jewish commoners, broke as a joke, walked away from dull careers, who now travel around with Jesus, nearly homeless, with nothing of earthly value whatsoever. They witnessed what would be one of the most qualified men not being able to inherit eternal life. Can you imagine what, what, they, what was going on through their, their mind? This left them nearly speechless as they saw the perfect candidate walk away sorrowful and grieved as a result of his encounter with Jesus. Let's read verses 26 through 27. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. So if it is impossible for a prestigious man like this to get in, then the disciples don't stand a chance. And neither do you. And neither do I. So it's no wonder then the next question becomes, well then who can be saved? (laughs) Who can be saved? Jesus responds, if left up to you, no one. It's impossible. So church, if you haven't surrendered to this truth that you can absolutely do nothing to earn God's favor based on your own works or achievements, then you're still stuck at the starting line of the gospel just like this rich young ruler and unable to progress. If we go back to the beginning of his conversation in verse 17, we can see that he was doomed from the very beginning by asking the wrong question. What good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? This is the wrong question many are asking across the globe in America today. What can I do to get to heaven? How much money do I have to give? How much time do I have to serve? How many times do I have to go to church? Well, the answer to this question is a simple nothing. You can do no thing to enter eternal life. So instead of asking what must I do, maybe the real question we should be asking is what has God done? What has God done so that I may be saved? This is the question that should be ringing through our minds every morning we get out of bed. What has God done to help me break the hold that I have on these idols that I cannot let go of? What has God done to help me steward my wealth in such a way that it will not consume me and take over me? What has God done? so that I am able to follow and have allegiance with Jesus and Jesus alone. If, according to Calvin, the heart is a perpetual idol factory, and the Bible tells us again and again that our corrupted hearts are the nucleus of our problems, then we need a new one. We need a new heart if we're ever to follow Jesus, holy. And this is why God goes after the heart, you see, He knows if he has your heart, he has your whole body. Meaning just having your brain isn't enough for God. He doesn't just want you to simply believe in him. That's not enough. Just having your hands isn't enough. He doesn't want you to simply just do good things for him. He wants all of you. From your head down to your toes. So what has God done so that this can happen? Well, the answer can be found right where we started in verse 17. And as he, Jesus, was setting out on his journey. See, Jesus was set out on a journey, a journey that would end in the city of Jerusalem. He was on a mission, ordained by God the Father, where he would be tried as a loony heretic, beaten, mocked, led to Golgotha while carrying the very cross that he was to die on. And verse 21 says that while this rich young ruler boasts that he has kept all the commandments, kind of like a child playing in his daddy's clothes, foolishly and ignorantly sinning against God who's standing right in front of him Jesus loves him he has compassion on him first John 4 10 says this is love this is love not that we have loved God but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins It's this very love that while watching this young man wallow in his inability and sin, Jesus was willingly on his way to pay for what this man couldn't afford. To take the full punishment and wrath of God on behalf of arrogant, adulterous, selfish sinners just like him. Just like you. Just like me. What was impossible for us... Jesus was sent to make possible, and he qualified for heaven because he met God's standard of good. He obeyed God's law perfectly. He paid the, the full cost, and he beat the odds. All this so that he can earn up this great reward that he deserves, that he earned, but yet he gives it to us. He exchanges it for the punishment that we deserve. What? What? And because Jesus died in our place, we can now be born again to new life in Christ, where we receive those new hearts that then enable us to let go of our idols, to repent of sin, and to follow him with holy, devoted hearts. So Jesus is the answer to inheriting eternal life. But it is not a one-time ticket punch or a one-time decision. It's a costly decision to abandon self. And to live a new life where you're gradually being transformed every day into his likeness. Let's read the last section of our text, verse 28 through 31. Oh, Peter. (laughs) Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers, sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Good old Peter's the first to speak up again. And still seeming as if he is not getting it. And he's not. Well, we have. You hear that self-centered language. Jesus, we have. We, we have left everything, just like you're asking. So are we good to go? What do we get for our sacrifice? It's interesting that the majority of this lesson, when you talk about the rich young ruler, is about this rich young ruler who walked away from Christ. And we don't really know if he ever came to a repentance or faith in Jesus. But then Jesus redirects to his own disciples One theologian says, in the process of discipleship, Jesus will lead these disciples into ever deepening regions of their hearts where they will still discover discover stubborn remnants of self-sufficiency and lack of trust in God. It's also important to note the slow processes of maturing in his disciples, for example, in the life of Peter. So for those of you who have given up your life to follow Jesus, this warning is for you as well. Beware of complacency. Don't get complacent. Remember the cost that you have committed to and run your, way, your race well. Run it with endurance. Be responsive when Jesus places his finger on a new sore and know that he's doing it because he's maturing you to be like Christ in the process. Getting into heaven may be more difficult than you think, but it is so Worth it. It is so worth it. If you're here this morning and you're feeling a heavy conviction that maybe you haven't counted the cost fully to follow Christ and instead you're just living for yourself, then respond to it. Please respond to it. Take action. Repent and pray to God for help in following Christ. He is faithful. If anything, do not leave here. Do not walk out these doors fooled into thinking that entering heaven is as easy as simply acknowledging Jesus or trying to be a good person or trying to obey some rules while you continue to live as the captain of your own life, living in whatever ways are most pleasing and comfortable to you. For all of us in this room, let go of your lives. Give them to Jesus and take confidence that through his perfect Work on the cross, which, by the way, has been done already. You will inherit eternal life. Go ahead and write him that blank check and count every earthly thing as lost for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus your Lord. I promise you a day will come when you realize that every single thing you had to give up, every hardship, every pain that you had to go through was totally worth it. So hang in there. Let's end with this final exhortation from Christ. Please turn to Matthew 16. Matthew 16, 24 through 27. Matthew 16, 24 through 27. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And God, forgive us for the times that we become complacent. Forgive me for the times that I forget what cost I committed to in following you. Truly, God, the treasures of this world are so desirable, they're so promising of health and wealth and security. But for what? Lord, our bodies decay every day. Death is a sign of the curse of sin. We all have it. God, will you remind us of your wonderful, glorious gospel that Christ took our sins upon the cross. He paid the cost. He qualifies for heaven. He represents us. Thank you for Jesus. God, that in the midst of hard truths like these, that we have an answer. An answer that is better than anything that we could ever come up with ourselves. So we worship Christ this morning. We thank you for his sacrifice, willingly going to the cross for us so that we could be with you, so that we can inherit eternal life. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters that you would implant this message in whatever way needs to be in their heart. We pray that as a church here at GCF, we would fight towards purity and holiness. Not for the sake of boasting, but God, for the sake of glorifying you and what your church should look like. And for those who are here who don't know you, God, would you pierce their hearts with this truth? Confront them. Approach them. And Lord, I pray that you would enable them to let go of what they're holding on to so they could follow you. Thank you for your word, your precious, precious word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.